0: Good morning. Good to be with you again today. We sure appreciate your coming out this morning. I'd like to ask you to open your Bible to two passages. Our focus of attention will be out of James, but I will be referencing another passage in 1 Timothy, so I thought we would read that uh, this morning. First of all, in James chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? And then I'd like to have you read with me, follow along as I read 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, as we'll reference this passage During the course of our time together, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in a living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, and storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may take hold on eternal life. Let me pray. Father, this morning as we are gathered together, I pray that our time in your word will be a time which we can have our perspectives adjusted to be congruent with yours. That we will see as you see. That you will be mindful of the way that you think. We pray your Holy Spirit will lead us to that end, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Monday, in Garden Grove Beach, South Carolina, thousands of starfish were washed up on the beach left there to roast in the sun and to die. Some of the locals and the tourists came rushing to the beach and some took a few starfish to take home, but others were taking starfish one by one and trying to place them back into the water to be rescued so that they could live. When I saw that on the news this past Monday, I was reminded of a story that a number of you have probably heard before of a similar incident where thousands of starfish had been washed up on the beach only to die and there was a a man out there by himself and one by one he would take a starfish and he would set it in the water and then go get another one and set it in the water but with the thousands that were on the beach there was no way that he would make even a dent of saving starfish before most of them died. And another bystander was looking and watching this and yelled out to this man, what does it matter? And that individual stooped down and reached for another starfish and brought it to the water and then turned and said to the bystander, it mattered to that one. What a great perspective to see individual starfish rather than a large group. And today I want to share with you from the very outset that God, particularly as exhibited through His Son, Jesus Christ, does not see crowds. He sees people. He doesn't see large gatherings. He sees individual persons. In our passage today, we are going to focus on how we see people how we see them as individuals and how we size them up so to speak how we measure others and thinking how can we do that with divine eyes seeing others in the way that God sees them in our passage this morning in James chapter 2 verse 5 I'd like to just share a few things concerning the context of the verse Again, the verse is, listen, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? The context is in the subject of trials. James is a book that teaches us how to respond to trials and life's difficulties well and he outlines a threefold step in verse 19 of the first chapter to be quick to listen slow to speak and slow to anger in verses 26 and 27 he addresses briefly what it means to be slow to speak but in verse 27 he begins to introduce the subject of what it means to be quick to listen and what James is basically teaching in this section of the epistle, as the body of his epistle, the bulk of the epistle, is divided into those three categories. And the first major section is what it means to be quick to listen. The second major section, slow to speak in chapter 3, and the third major section, slow to anger. And in this first section of what does it mean to be quick to listen, James's overriding message is this, true listening to God, is not seen by how much we know, but by what we do. It's like our parents who would say, did you listen to me? (laughs) When they said that, they weren't asking us if we heard the words or even intellectually understood them. They were asking, are you going to do what we talked about? And God is saying that true listeners are those that not only hear the word, but become doers. And it's exhibited in chapter 1, verse 27, when he says this, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God our Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, keeping yourself unstained from the world. It's a personal involvement to visit the needy. In the first century, orphans and widows were not adequately provided for by disability checks or social security payments or life insurance plans. A widow was in tough shape and orphans all the more. The social programs that we have in the United States today were not available to these people. They were broke. They were poor. And James is saying a true listener is going to take acknowledgement of that, but not only do that, but to visit them. This idea of visiting them has the idea of personal involvement. It's more than just writing out a check to a charity organization, or to a mission, or even to a church. It's not being part of a movement. It's being part of people. Individual starfish one by one into the sea. God's calling us to individual people, one by one, because it matters to them. In this context, James is teaching this should be exemplified in the greatest way in the local church. That there is the acknowledgement of the poor and the needy. Those that live life in a context that's tough. So he says, when that poor man walks into your church, how do you treat them? Now before we go any farther, we have to recognize that in this context, and basically throughout the entire first century world of Christians, they did not meet in buildings like this. They met in tenement situations and contexts, homes, 10, 15, 20 people. And so then when a poor person would walk into that church gathering, that small group setting, James is warning them against a partiality that favors the wealthy and the prestigious over the poor and the needy. If somebody comes in with fine clothes and shows evidence of well-being... Here, you come in here, and we have a brand-new Lazy Boy here for you. It's the most comfortable ch- chair in the house. Help! We want you to sit here. But the poor man who comes in clothes that are worn, he shows evidence of poverty, that the church would say, uh, we got a folding chair in the garage. It's got a little paint that's been spilled on it, but just we'll dust it off here for you, and you can sit here. James says, not, that's not to be. Why? Well, first of all, notice that it's an individual man. If a man walks in, individual attention again. He says these words, do you not know, my brethren, that God has chosen the poor of this world To be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. You need to have a perspective adjustment, James is saying, on who the poor really are. Before we talk about that, I'd like to simply say this. We find already in our passage that God is impressed with individual attention to the needy. He's much more impressed by people who give personal movement towards an individual to assist in any way than he is by being part of a movement. Movements are something anybody can do. Individual attention takes a lot more and a lot more sacrifice. We can have movements as it relates to racism, as it relates to poverty, as it relates to politics, as it relates to social engagement. But I think God is calling us as Christians to be personally involved with individuals. I can't help but think of Curtis and Michelle Thompson, who our church financially supports, but they're in the inner city of Chicago. They are visiting the orphans and widows in their distress every day. They are engaging the African American community in all of the struggles that they are facing and what those kids are facing on a daily basis, from the homes that they live in, from the physical needs that they have, just basic needs of food And, of course, loving attention. That is true listening. The personal involvement. Or I think of another woman in our church who does it in prison ministry with women who are incarcerated. Another woman who I won't name who is very personally involved with homeless, but particularly one at a time. We have witnessed how she brings this person to a physician or spends time with them personally to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Those that are quietly serving behind the scenes, taking one starfish at a time and bringing it out to the water so we can live. That's the essence of this passage. What is the meaning of the verse of our attention? Who are the poor of this world? People that have great need. Our missionary ministry that we have around the world, the pastors of these churches in Africa, India, they will testify the fact that the majority of the people work today to earn enough cash to pay for tomorrow's food. When they say, give us this day our daily bread, that is literal for them. These are people who not only have great need, but Christians who have great faith because of their great need. Because of their poverty, they have learned how to be dependent on a daily basis, hour by hour, upon the God who provides. And through that daily exercise of trusting God for these things, they have developed into people who are rich, but they're rich in faith. And because they are so rich in faith, having had that developed through their poverty... God rewards them with being heirs of the kingdom to come. They will have a a high position in God's kingdom to come. But not only that, their dependency and their wealth of faith will not only reward them in the future, God says He prepares that for those who love Him because the greater sense of dependency we have, the greater our love, affection for God Himself increases. Therefore James says, "Don't show partiality to the rich over the poor. Don't you know it's the poor <laughs> who are really the wealthy ones? Don't you know that Christians who are poor usually are the ones that have the greatest faith, the daily exercise of trusting God for their provisions? They're heirs of the kingdom. Paul talks about those who are rich in this present world. James is addressing those who are rich in the world to come. They're rich in faith versus those who trust in uncertain riches, as Paul says. The word uncertain carries the idea they're not dependable. I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands, but has anybody's 40K or 403B been impacted in the last few months? and very rapidly at that. No matter what way we invest or try to save, riches are uncertain. They can quickly change. Heirs of the kingdom, and James urges those who are rich in this present world, be generous so that they can lay up a good foundation for the future and be rich in the kingdom to come have you ever paid someone for services and you know that they are wealthier than you are (laughs) but they have services that you need and you pay them for their services but you know that they have more money than what you have I had that happen in February My wife was in Omaha with our daughter for about six weeks. And in February, I came down sick. I haven't been tested, so I don't know if it was the big one or not, but I know I felt lousy for four weeks very tired, congestion, wheezing. During those four weeks, I was alone. She was in Omaha. It was miserable. And finally, I started getting better, snapping out of it, getting energy back, and I decided to go see my wife in Omaha, and I scheduled a plane uh, ticket, and I thought, you know what? I've been here six weeks alone. This house is an absolute disaster. Plus, I've been coughing and hacking, and so I called up Sevella. Sevella is from Guatemala. She's a close friend of my wife's. Sevelia cannot speak very much English at all. She is now an American citizen, but I don't speak any Spanish, but my wife is fluent, and they are jabbering away oftentimes. I don't know what they're talking about, but I know it's it's a good friendship. I had her phone number, and I called Sevelia because I needed her services. She does house cleaning to make ends meet. Checkbook-wise, <laughs> mine is way and beyond hers. Bank account-wise, there's no comparison. But Sevilla has an incredible walk with Jesus Christ, a smile on her face, and a daily trust in God that you rarely see in people like that and uh, even though I couldn't speak Spanish well she did get the message over the phone of help <laughs> I need you and she came over in her minivan and pulled out a bucket with some mops and some pine salt and Lysol and other kinds of sols, I guess that can disinfect the house and clean it up well and she was gonna scrub it from top to bottom and she did and I paid her handsomely. I paid a woman who is wealthier than me. Not at Bank of Clark, but in the kingdom to come. I paid a woman who I know is rich in faith. Paul contrasts in 2 Timothy those who love him and love his appearing versus a man named Demas who at one time was a missionary partner with Paul but it says he fell in love with this present world and has left me James gives us a stark reminder measure people the way God does see people through divine eyes see people as he sees them Listen, my beloved brethren. Don't neglect the poor that come into your assembly meeting. Don't you know that they're oftentimes the ones that are rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? One teacher of this book in my life said, you have heard that you cannot tell a book by its cover. God says you cannot tell a king by his clothing. How true. And that leads us to our applications. May God help us to re-examine our value system. You might say, Don, do I have to become financially poor to become rich in faith? The answer to that is no. Because James also gives instruction concerning that issue. He says in chapter 1, let the rich man glory in his humiliation. What does that mean? In the context, he is again addressing trials, and he is saying this, that those who have financial ability, like most of us in this room, and probably all of us in comparison to world standards, realize that when we go through trials, Even if our bank accounts are strong, most of the difficulties that we face in life, money cannot get us out of them. The rich get sick, too. The rich lose loved ones, too. The rich experience the trials of life that money cannot prevent. And it humbles us. And James reminds us glory, therefore, in your humiliation, glory in your humbleness. Because what that humbleness is doing is that it's bringing you to realize that you are now poor in spirit, the very first beatitude of Jesus, "Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the earth. They'll be heirs of the kingdom. It's recognizing our dependency. And trials have a way of bringing us to our knees. I'm sure that in this room alone, there are a number of you experiencing difficulties right now that you wish money could buy you out of. But at what it is doing, it's bringing you to look to heaven, it brings us on our knees and the greater sense of dependency that we have on a day-to-day basis upon the God of heaven the greater our love relationship grows in him I know for certain that through trials and our awareness of our need and an awareness of our helplessness are looking to heaven our prayer life increases with fervency and regularity but even more so our love relationship grows little by little and we become like the people who have financial poverty we begin growing to be rich in faith and also experience ones who will inherit the kingdom that God has promised to those who love Him, and our love increases in time. May God help us to re-examine what's of real value, and trials have a way of doing that. Trials have a way of readjusting what's important and what's not. (laughs) And it increases our dependency upon God. When you have people that are able to discern and understand one another through divine eyes, we become a very discerning church. We discern what's of value and what isn't. We discern who is really rich and who isn't. We discern a lot of things about people as we start seeing people the way that God sees them. And no one has ever exhibited this greater than God's own son Jesus Christ and to this morning in closing I'd like to share with you a few examples man saw a woman that they called a gentile dog Jesus saw that same woman and said she has greater faith than anybody that I have seen in Israel Man saw another woman five times divorced. Jesus saw a woman who was spiritually thirsty and needing a drink. Man saw an adulterous woman who was intruding on a very important dinner time. Jesus saw a woman whose heart was filled with worship and gratitude for her forgiveness as she washed his feet with her tears and her hair. Man saw a crook and a traitor by the name of Zacchaeus. Jesus saw a seeker who wanted a friend and was willing to go to far ends to restore his relationship with God. Man saw a position and authority of a high-ranking official, an impressive man. Jesus saw a helpless man whose son was very sick, a man who was desperate, but who believed his word. At a time when another high ranking officer had a little girl who was very, very sick. And his position and authority could do nothing about it. And he pleads with Jesus because he's a daddy. And daddy's little girl was in desperate need. And people saw this high-ranking official who was now playing the role of a loving daddy to minister to his little girl. But there's another person that came on the scene. The little girl was 12 years of age, but this other person had a problem that had been existing for 12 years too. She had an issue of blood coming out, excreting from her body and, frankly, it's kind of gross. It certainly made her unclean. She wasn't attracting the sympathy of others, and she had expended all of her money. She was desperate, but she was very alone. Man saw an unclean woman. Jesus Christ saw a woman who needed to be healed but not just in her body, which he did he saw that she needed a daddy too and that's why he addressed her as daughter he not only healed her body he touched the innermost part of her soul that's how Jesus looked at people And, friends, a church made up of people who are walking with God and whose minds are being changed into the mind of Christ, that their views of people change too. Because we begin to think as He thinks, we begin to size up as He sizes up, we measure as He measures. And it's usually the opposite of what we normally would do this was exhibited to me in a very personal way one day I was at an eating establishment here in Winchester I was there to pick up some food and a cup of coffee take it out with me on a to-go and as I was waiting at the counter for my food a person walked in that had an appearance that shocked me. I had never seen this before. I had heard about it, but I had never personally seen it. I did kind of a double take, and then I didn't really know what to do or to say, or I just didn't go immediately into judgmental, Thoughts on how despicable, but I was just kind of shocked by it all. I uh, took my food and I walked out of the restaurant and went to my car. Later that day, as Patty and I were reviewing the day, I shared with her my little experience there. I kid you not, A couple of weeks later, my wife went to that same establishment to meet a friend for lunch. And she ordered her food, and when she received her food, she went to sit down, and she noticed an individual who fit the description perfectly. There were other places to sit, but Patty was drawn to go sit in the parameter, or in the vicinity of this person. Patty pulled out a book out of her purse because her friend was going to be about 15 minutes late. And she began reading as she was waiting for her friend. And This individual sitting very close by then got up after a few minutes to leave. Patty noticed that and she looked up from her book and looked this person in the eyes and said, you have a good day now. And that person, probably a little bit shocked, said to Patty, you too. That night when Patty shared with me who she had run into that day, I said, Patty, what did you see? And she said, I saw a broken heart. She didn't describe how this person was dressed, how this person was behaving. Didn't describe anything about the externals. She went to the real issue. And her heart was filled with compassion because she saw a person like Jesus does. A strong church is a discerning church, not a judgmental church. It's a church of personal involvement in the lives of people, hurting people in many different ways, those who are poor financially, but also those who are poor in spirit. For unsaved people who have yet to hear about Jesus Christ or to put their faith in them, and believers who are going through suffering. A discerning church is a church that sees people, individual people, as God sees them. Let's pray. Father, all I can say in closing Make me to be that more and more. And I believe there are people in these chairs today who are asking you the same thing. Work in our hearts that we may have the mind of Christ, that we can continue to be transformed with one result being realizing who's who and what's what, and be instruments of yours to present your grace through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.